Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height or depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's word this morning, it's important that we make sure that we are in right relationship with God. At the instant that we put our faith in Jesus Christ as our Savior, we have eternal life. We are given a new spiritual life, which is energized by God the Holy Spirit. But when we sin, that fellowship with God, that ongoing sanctifying ministry of the Holy Spirit is broken. And the only way to recover it is to simply confess our sins, as 1 John 1, nine says. That means to admit or acknowledge to the Lord, that which we have uh, done, the sins that we have committed, that we remember, and we're promised in 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, that is what we just mentioned, and forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, that is, even if what we don't remember or what we don't know is a sin, everything is forgiven, we're cleansed, restored to temporal fellowship, and our spiritual life continues. God, the Holy Spirit, the Scripture says, is our teacher, our guide, the one who enables us to grow, enables us to understand the Word, and enables us to remember what we have been taught. So we always begin with a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we're in fellowship, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're indeed grateful that we have your word, for it is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Father, we know that as we study your word that it is God the Holy Spirit who uses that to produce growth in our lives, and it is through a study of your word that we are able to set aside the kind of thinking that is earthbound, temporal, that focuses on uh, that which we see, that which we experience. And it's only on the basis of your word that we are able to understand the scope of your plan and the purpose of human history and our lives for each of our lives fit within the uh, pattern of human history and have a significant and important role. Now, Father, as we continue our study in Revelation, as we continue to understand your plan, your purposes, and where things are headed We pray that we might have a greater appreciation and understanding of how we fit into this plan 
and that as we understand where you are taking history, we can better understand how we are to live to glorify you today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are in Revelation chapter 10, beginning our study in Revelation chapter 10 this morning. So turn with me in your Bibles. A question that has always plagued humanity, always perplexed human beings, is a question of why is it that good people suffer? As one Jewish rabbi wrote and titled his book recently, Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People? Of course, he said it's because God really doesn't have any kind of control and he just throws up his hands in uh, impotence. Of course, he was not right. He is not someone who... Uh, believes in the scripture. But this shows the importance of this particular question. There is not one of us who has not awakened in the morning and read the morning paper, watched the morning news or the evening news, and seen and heard of terrible and horrible uh, things, misfortunes, disasters that have come upon those who were seemingly undeserving, those who had done nothing uh, to uh, warrant such tremendous suffering and such chaos in their lives. We question sometimes whether God is indeed just. Is there is there really going to be justice for those who are so wicked and so evil? This question was raised several times by the writer of the Psalms as he would question God and say, How long, O Lord, will the wicked prosper? and the righteous suffer. It's when we study in the book of Revelation, we come to an understanding of how God is going to bring all things to a right and judicial end, and that even though there is uh, undeserved suffering and chaos in the lives of people today, God will indeed uh, execute justice and bring about justice uh, before human history is over with. What we learn from the scripture is that justice delayed is not justice denied. And it's only when we come to the end of the Bible, the last book in the Bible, the book of Revelation, that we can, and we understand God's end game, that we are able to see why God delays justice. This is also a question that is asked by those who were martyred during the first part of the tribulation period. And we saw that in our study of Revelation chapter 6 and the fifth seal, as so many believers in the early part of the tribulation are martyred, lose their lives, and they are pictured as being under the golden altar in heaven, praying to God to please bring about justice upon those who have uh, martyred them, those who have treated them unjustly, killed them, killed their families, killed the believers that they know and love. And yet the answer that they receive is it's not time yet. God has a timetable and he will deal with with injustice and evil in its right time. And so we have to wait upon the fact that he is uh, omniscient and he understands all of the facts and all of the details and eventually and surely he will bring about Justice, And this is one of the major themes in the book of Revelation, for it is only as we understand what happens in the tribulation period 
that we can see all of these different threads of evil and injustice come together in this final great end-time rebellion against God when God will indeed judge Satan, who is the author of all evil and all suffering in the universe. He will judge Satan and those who have, uh, those who have followed him. Now, as we've gone through our study of Revelation, one of the things that I have done is to periodically pause and cover large segments of Revelation, either at the beginning of a new section or at the end of a section, so that uh, at the beginning we can have an overview, a flyover, and get a bird's-eye view of a, of a two- or three- or four-chapter uh, section of Scripture before we begin to take apart the details. And then when we come to the end of that section... I like to go back and cover the same area, another flyover, to pull all of the threads together and to help us to keep uh, that, that view of what the writer is talking about. Remember, in the early church, many of these epistles, especially Pauline, Petrine, Johannine uh, epistles, were written to be read at one time to a congregation, and they would sit down and they would hear the letter read uh, in a church service with very little explanation. And the same way the book of Revelation would be read to a congregation and they would understand it to a certain degree and there was very little uh, exposition or explanation at the time. So uh, these were read, so they had an understanding of the overall uh, view of the book, something that we often lose when we take so much time going verse by verse, phrase by phrase, clause by clause, and we lose sight of the, the, the overall structure of the, uh, of the book itself. So we're entering into a new section with Revelation chapter 10, and what we read as you look at Revelation 10, 1 and 2 is that John sees a, another mighty or strong angel coming down from heaven, and in verse 2 we read that this strong angel has a little book open in his hand. Now, this little book is different from the scroll that was in the hand of God the Father back in Revelation chapter 4. This is a much smaller uh, book. We'll get into the details of the exegesis of this next time. But this little book contains a portion of the prophecies related to the tribulation period. So there is a break in the action that we have seen. And to put this up on the screen so we can uh, review a little bit, we have seen that the rapture occurs before chapter 4. In chapters 4 and 5, this is the section in the chart on the far left, there is a vision that John has as he is taken to heaven and he describes the scene before the supreme court of heaven, before the heavenly throne as you have the four living creatures who are angels, the 24 elders who are representatives of the church as they are gathered before the throne of God and there is a search going on for someone, anyone who is qualified to take the scroll that lies in the open right hand of God the Father. And this search is intense, so intense that John breaks down weeping, wailing, uh, that none can be found qualified to open the scroll. And then the angel touches him and says to be quiet because one has been found who is worthy to open the scroll. And this is the Lamb of God 
who died on the cross for the sins of the world. And so the term lamb is introduced for the first time, a title, I mean, in this prophetic, first time in this prophetic section, a title for the Lord Jesus Christ, and that he is, he is the one who is worthy to open the scroll. And then there is a, the uh, heavenly chorus sings praise to the Lord Jesus Christ because he is worthy to open the scroll. And then as he begins to open the scroll, this is a seven-sealed scroll, and he begins to open these seals, and it is the Lamb and the Lamb alone who opens the seals. We have these seven seals, each of which stands for a judgment, each of which represents a different judgment that unfolds within human history. And I believe on the basis of analysis of Revelation that these occur in the first part of the tribulation period. As you see in this chart, this is a a chart of the seven years of the tribulation. The tribulation is divided into two periods of equal length, three and a half years. What makes the significance in the middle is this is when the Antichrist will desecrate the temple, the rebuilt temple, the tribulation temple, in Jerusalem, and that event is called the Abomination of Desolation. So we have the first seven seals are opened, and when the seventh seal is opened, it reveals a second series of judgments called the Trumpet Judgments. There's a pause, though, in the action between the sixth seal and the first trumpet as we go to heaven, and we see in heaven that there are two groups of people, uh, two groups of redeemed individuals, that are emphasized, these are they who receive the grace of God in the tribulation period. The first group is marked out as 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel, the 144,000 Jews who are sealed. They receive the seal of God upon their forehead. They are protected by God from these judgments, not from persecution, not from martyrdom, but from these judgments. That's the first part of chapter 7. The second part of chapter 7 focuses on those who were martyred, an untold number of those martyred during the first part of the tribulation period who are uh, in heaven. And then chapters 8 and 9 describe the seven trumpet judgments, and we have gone through those in some detail. And then there is a pause in the action, a pause in the action that stops at the end of chapter 9. And there is a shift that occurs. So last time, in our last lesson, we did a review of these chapters. And now what I want to do is an overview of the next section from chapters that will cover chapters 10 through 14. 10 through 14, the bold judgments do not begin until chapter 15. So we see that there is a unity here in these chapters between um, 10, 11, 12, 13, and 14. So let me just give you a little bit of an overview of these chapters. Chapter 10 is the introduction. Chapter 10 is the introduction, and we see that John has uh, another look, and he sees a powerful angel, a strong angel. There are several angels within Revelation that are each called strong. There's nothing specifically unique about this angel other than his particular function at this time. So John writes, and I saw another strong angel coming down out of heaven clothed with a cloud, 
and a rainbow was on his head. His face was like the sun, his feet like pillars of fire. He had a little book open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. Now, we'll get into the details of this next time, but what's important here is the picture of this angel uh, is reminiscent of the vision John had of the Lord Jesus Christ back in chapter 1. And if you remember uh, back that far, when we studied Revelation chapter 1, John was exiled by the emperor Domitian to the Isle of Patmos, uh, for his preaching of the gospel, and there one, one Lord's Day, he has a vision. The Lord Jesus Christ appeared to him and commissioned him to write down what would be revealed to him at that point. And the Lord Jesus Christ is depicted there in ways that are similar yet different from the way this angel is described. Uh, the thing that they do have in common is that the feet or the lower part of the leg are like burnished bronze. It, it, it's a picture of a brilliant uh, metal that is shining. And the idea is it's a fiery metal, and the picture there is one of judgment. That's, the, that's what comes across in both the image of the Lord Jesus Christ in Revelation 1 and the angel here is that it is a scene of judgment. There are those who believe that this angel is the Lord Jesus Christ. That is not uh, founded. The Lord Jesus Christ is never called an angel in the book of Revelation. He is uh, given many titles in the book of Revelation, and it is always clear when the writer is speaking of the second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ. There are, though, several angels that appear in the book of Revelation to carry out certain uh, decrees, certain missions from the Supreme Court of Heaven who are called strong angels. Unfortunately, the English translations do not always translate the adjective there with the same English word. So you may find strong angel in one verse, mighty angel in another, powerful angel in another, but they all reflect the same verbiage in the original Greek. So this is just one class of angels that is used by God to carry out his judgment. And the fact that he puts his right foot on the sea and his left on the land indicates that his announcement here will apply to the entire earth and to all who dwell upon the earth and all who live upon the earth. And he is going to cry out, and when he cries out, it's like the roar of a lion, and there are seven peals of thunder that come at that particular time. These are seven thunder judgments, and we do not know what they are because John was uh, prohibited from revealing the contents of those thunder judgments. And then we hear the angel uh, announce and swear in verse 6, by him who lives forever and ever who created heaven and earth, this would be God the Father, one who created heaven and the things that are in it, the earth and the things that are in it, and the sea and the things that are in it, that there should be no delay any longer. See, justice delayed will no longer be delayed. This is the prelude to that final period of the tribulation when the full judgment of God is going to be poured out on those who have rebelled against him and this is when all things are brought to their final uh, culmination. And that is what's mentioned in verse 7. The mystery of God would be finished. And so the angel then tells John to take this little book in verse 9 
and he is to eat it. This is reminiscent of similar commands to Jeremiah and to Ezekiel in the Old Testament. It is a picture of completely ingesting and assimilating the prophetic message, the word of God, and he is to take it, and he is to eat it, and he is told that it will make your stomach bitter, but it will be as sweet as honey in your mouth. And what that is picturing is the fact that just as we have yearned for centuries that God would finally bring about justice upon his creatures, upon those who are wicked and upon those who are evil, there is a sweetness to that, to observe that, to know that God is going to finally bring about justice. But when the severity of that justice is witnessed, it is seen to be bitter. That is the emphasis of that of that figure of speech. We see saw something similar to that in Revelation chapter uh, 8, verse 1. And in chapter 8, verse 1, when the seventh seal was opened, there was, we're told, silence in heaven for about an hour. And when I covered that, I talked about how many times in Scripture there is this uh, a scene of silence before the, the throne of God, which is evidence of uh, the witnesses realizing the severity of God's judgment. Now, when um, John said that this was about a half an hour, uh, he is speaking from his own uh, frame of reference. John, as a mortal creature who has been transported into heaven, is thinking within his own time-bound frame of reference. Of course, in heaven, there is no time. There's no morning and evening. There are no seconds or minutes or hours or years. So he is simply talking from his own uh, viewpoint, from his own perspective, and he, it seems to him that that's how long this silence uh, lasts. And so we see this emphasis through Scripture that judgment is certain, judgment is severe, and though on the one hand we are glad and rejoice that God has brought evil to final judgment, there is also a... Uh, solemn aspect to that as we see that when it is executed, it is indeed uh, severe and hard for those who who receive it. So he is told to take this little book to eat it, and then in verse 11, he is given a new commission. Here the angel says, you must prophesy again about many people's nations tongues, and kings. Now, this is an important phrase to track through uh, the book of Revelation. It is used many times. It is used back in Revelation chapter uh, 5. First time we really see it emphasized is again before the throne of God and in Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, we're told that the Lamb is worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Now, there's a slight variant there because the word king is used in 1011, but it's not used there. And there are slight differences in the phraseology, but the, the collective use of these nouns, all peoples, that is, all all races, all members of humanity, all nations, all languages. 
and kings. This is an all-inclusive judgment. There is no uh, group that is held out and that it's going to somehow miss this group in term, miss this judgment. And so it relates to all of mankind, peoples, nations, languages, and kings. This phrase is picked up again several times in the next few chapters, in chapter 11, in chapter 12, in chapter 13, in chapter 14. And what we discover is that the content of this prophecy is about how God is going to bring about and finalize and bring to completion his judgment on all of mankind for their rebellion against him and for their rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. And so those who are alive at the time of the tribulation will receive this judgment. And so the next few chapters will depict this judgment uh, on the peoples, nations, languages, and king. So in essence, what I am saying is that chapter 10 is an introduction. What we see here is this little book that the angel has, and that the content of this little book is a segment of the prophecy related to the tribulation, and the content of the little book prophecy is what's contained in chapters 11, 12, 13, and 14. And so these chapters represent uh, a, a, a shift and a departure from the chronological flow we've seen up to this point. There's been a general chronological flow as we've gone through the seal judgments and then the trumpet judgments, and now there's a pause in the action. And this pause in the action is so that uh, other aspects of what is going on in the tribulation will be addressed. And these will be covered in chapters 11, 12, 13, and 14. So the, in, in essence, what the writer will do is go back and pick up different topics or different issues, and he will bring us up to date on those issues to this point in the uh, tribulation, uh, tribulation period. I've tried to chart this out this way. We have the little book prophecies that are related to events in the tribulation period. We've already seen that in the first half of the tribulation, we have the seal and trumpet judgments. Second half, we have the bowl judgments. Now, the chapter 11 is going to tell us about these two witnesses. These are two of the most, are two of the uh, most interesting individuals in the tribulation period. They are Old Testament prophets who will reappear on the scene, these two witnesses, and they specifically have a ministry to the remnant. So we have this introduction of Israel in chapter 11, and uh, emphasis on Israel and what is happening in Jerusalem. And so I've called this the two witnesses and the remnant. The remnant refers to regenerate Jews, those who are true Israel in the tribulation period and will be described further as the woman in chapter 11. This takes us up to the point when these two witnesses are martyred. They, are, uh, they, they die, they are then resurrected, and they ascend to heaven. And so the action in chapter 11 stops just after the midpoint of the tribulation period, said to be a period of 
260 days, which is just at three and a half years. And it's after the 1,260 days that they are martyred. Now, there's some debate, as we'll see, as to whether this occurs in the first half of the tribulation or second half of the tribulation. And one of the reasons this occurs in the first half of the tribulation is because if, the, if, if it begins at the midpoint, okay, the midpoint, and goes 1,260 days, and then they're killed, we already know that at one, the 1,260th day, that's when the Lord returns. That's the end of the tribulation. That is the second coming of Christ. So if they're killed after that, that would mean that they would be killed after the Lord Jesus Christ returns. So that just doesn't, doesn't really fit. The other reason that it doesn't fit is because of what is described in the prophecy in Daniel. Now, we've gone through this in the past, and we have seen that to really understand the book of Revelation, we have to understand the, the chronological framework that's laid down by Daniel and that uh, vision he has at the end of Daniel chapter 9 and verses 24 to 27 that God decreed a period of 70 periods of seven, are 490 years for the outworking of his plan for the Jews. But this is stopped at the 483rd year with the cutting off of the Messiah, leaving seven years that are unfulfilled in terms of that plan that God had for Israel. That seven-year period is then subdivided within the prophecies of Daniel into two periods, three and a half years each, and it is that 70th week as it's referred to, that 70th period of seven, that seven-year period that is then picked up at, in history after the rapture and is the period known as the tribulation. So what we've seen is that in the first half of the tribulation, you have the seals and the trumpet judgments. You have the sealing of the 144,000 who are evangelists to Israel. It is said to be a period of 1,260 days as distinct from 42 months. I think it's important to see that we'll see the term 42 months applied to the Antichrist and his uh, period of power in the tribulation. And the period of the activity of the two witnesses is said to be 1,260 days. This is the period when the two witnesses are present on the earth uh, in Jerusalem and this is described in Revelation chapter 11, verse 3. The second half of the tribulation is described by the term 42 months. And uh, this is the time when the two beasts have their greatest exercise of power. That's covered in Revelation chapter 13. Uh, Jerusalem will be trodden down by the Gentiles during this time. It is called the period of the great tribulation in Matthew 24, 21 as distinct from the tribulation as a whole. And in Malachi uh, chapter 4, verse 5, it is called the great and terrible day of the Lord. So this is the intensified period of the tribulation when the greatest amount of authority is given to the beasts and to Satan to do all that they can to try to subvert the human race and to realize their rebellious goals against God. So that gives you a little bit of a perspective there, and we have to talk some about what goes on in Daniel, uh, Daniel's 
Daniel's verses in Daniel chapter 9 because it pertains to this operation that comes up in um, the beginning, the first part of chapter 11. We read in chapter 11 that John becomes a participant in the action again. Then I was given, he says, a reed like a measuring rod. This was typical in the ancient world. They didn't have yardsticks. You didn't go down to the local Home Depot and pick up a craftsman uh, ruler and a yardstick or tape measure in order to measure things. You had a reed, and these reeds were a uh, certain length, and they were just like the old uh, measuring sticks, and so that's what he uses to measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. And the idea of measuring the temple is a picture of God's control over the events that will take place during this time period. And in verse 2, we're told, but leave out the court, which is outside the temple. So the temple had two areas. There's the inner sanctum, which is, as we've studied in our, our study on the tabernacle and the temple, that's the holy, the, the, the tabernacle itself containing the holy place and the holy of holies. Then the, there was the outer courtyard. And the picture here is that uh, Jews will have a measure of control over this tribulation temple, but that ultimately it is... Um, this, they will lose that, and the holy city itself, Jerusalem, will be under the dominion of the Gentiles for 42 months. This will bring to a conclusion the period that Luke referred to as the times of the Gentiles. So that 42 months that's described there in verse 2 refers to the second half of the tribulation when the Antichrist has his greatest degree of authority and power. And in verse 3 we read, And I will give power to my two witnesses. God speaking, he will have give power to two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days. If this were to be the same period as the 42 months, that number would have been uh, repeated again to show that they were identical. But by changing from 42 months to 1,260 days, we see that this is a distinct period. So these uh, two witnesses will come upon the scene, and they are then described in verse 4 as having a ministry similar to these two olive trees, two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. Now, to understand that, we have to go back and understand a couple of things coming out of the, out of the Old Testament. The first is that there is a comparison between um, these events and what we find in Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9 talks about the fact that the beginning of the tribulation will come when the Antichrist signs a peace treaty or covenant with Israel. Now, this is important because a lot of us have, you know, get the, get the idea that the rapture begins the tribulation. The rapture ends the church age, but it's the signing of this covenant between the Antichrist and Israel that really starts the stopwatch going again. This, this is what starts the countdown of Daniel's 70th week. And if you look at the passage in Daniel 9, it's clear that what is allowed by this peace treaty is that Israel will be able to reinstate the Levitical services, rituals, and sacrifices 
on the Temple Mount. Now, that is not going to happen today in the current scenario because there is a little thing called the Dome of the Rock that is the one of the great sites for Islam. And any time the Jews even act like they had some kind of ownership of the Temple Mount, the Arabs riot. That is their standard response. And so there's, there is only going to be a possibility of Israel restoring sacrifices if somehow militant Islam, it is, as it currently is, is acting, is somehow uh, rendered impotent. Something must happen between now and then for, uh, other, to, to defang, uh, to render Islam impotent to react to this. So there'll be a, a restoration of the sacrifices because in the middle of the tribulation period, when you have that event known as the abomination of desolation, the Antichrist brings sacrifices to an end according to Daniel 9.27. That means that sacrifices have been reinstituted and he ends them. So, and, and when he ends them, he sets himself up sets up a statue of himself in the uh, Holy of Holies of the temple on the Temple Mount, and he will be set up to be the ruler. Now, here's a picture of Jerusalem as it now stands with the uh, Dome of the Rock, uh, the Harem al-Sharif on the uh, Temple Mount, and that is exactly where the... Uh, the temple was located, the Solomonic Temple, and then later the second temple, the Herodian Temple. And the rock that's referred to there is the rock, the foundation stone on which the Ark of the Covenant rested. And what we see in chapter 11 is that uh, there will be a removal of the Dome of the Rock and a reinstitution of some sort of temple, uh, temple sacrifice. And it is in this context that these two witnesses will appear and they will be given authority and they will prophesy for 1260 days. Now, the imagery used of the olive trees and the lampstands goes back to Zechariah chapter 4, verse 3. We'll have to study that. And it relates to the ministry of two key people when Israel returned from the Babylonian captivity. Zerubbabel, who was the political leader, and Joshua, who was the high priest. And the picture of them and I just set off everybody's alarm. The picture of them in uh, 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 Zechariah is that they are receiving power from oil directly out of these uh, out of the uh, uh, olive trees. And that's a depiction of their being empowered by God the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm sure that that alarm that is going off out there belongs to somebody in here rather than having to... What? Stop. Okay. Now, in the tribulation period, these two witnesses are thought by most scholars to be Moses and Elijah because of what they do. Their power that they have is given in verse 6. They have the power to shut heaven so it doesn't rain. That's what Elijah did. And we will uh, see that in our study on Tuesday nights as we go, continue our study of 1 Kings. And we are now in the period of Elijah. 
They have the power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy, and they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with plagues as often as they desire. This is like the ministry of of, uh, Moses when he delivered the Israelites from their bondage in, uh, in Egypt. And so it is thought that these two that come back are these two great prophets of Israel, the two greatest prophets that Israel had, And one of the reasons that God brings them back is that after the rapture, there's no one left on the earth that has a witness of the truth because all believers are taken out of the way. Now, there'll be some Jews who've had uh, church-age believers witness to them during this uh, church age, and some of them will, on the basis of that information, trust in Christ as Savior. But the primary... Uh, witness in that period is going to be these two witnesses that appear at the beginning of the tribulation uh, time. They will probably be instrumental in leading many of the 144,000 back in, we saw in Revelation chapter 7 to the Lord, and they, that will be the foundation of the witness to Israel. So what we see here is that there's a shift in chapter 11 to this focus on Israel. Now, one of the reasons we believe it's Elijah is because Malachi 4, 5 says that Elijah the prophet must come. God will send Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. So we know that he will appear before the last half of the tribulation. And in Matthew 17, verses 10 through 12, our Lord told his disciples that Elijah will come and restore all things. And so this must take place again before uh, the second half of the tribulation, the restoration of the temple and sacrificial system and all of that that occurs in Israel takes place during the first half of the tribulation period, even though that is still an apostate temple. There will be these two Old Testament prophets there on the earth at that time. Now, the Antichrist is extremely uh, angry with them, and so we're told in verses 7 through 10 of chapter 11 that they will be martyred. Uh, we're told in verse 7, when they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit. So notice the introduction of the terminology, the beast. We don't find out exactly who he is until we get to chapter 13. But the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, that's Jerusalem, for three days. And then... All the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies. It's possible with satellites and television. And those who dwell on the earth, underline that phrase, those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them. They'll quit celebrating Christmas, and they'll have a new day. And they will trade presents, and it's a three-day holiday. And everybody on all the earth dwellers will rejoice that these prophets who tormented them, how did they torment them? They tormented them primarily because they told them the truth. And, and neg- mankind in negative volition, hostile to God, hates hearing the truth. You can't do anything to torture a negative, hostile unbeliever more than to emphasize the truth of God's word because it makes it just runs against everything they uh, they believe and they want to be true. So these witnesses will lie out there so that all can see them. And in, beginning in verse 11, we're told that after three and a half days, God will breathe life into them, they will be resurrected, and then they will ascend to heaven. But the important thing to notice is what happens in verse 13. In the same hour that they are ascended, there is a great earthquake, 
and a tenth of the city fell. One-tenth of Jerusalem will be destroyed in this earthquake, and 7,000 people are killed. But note the last phrase. And the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. Now, who are they? These are the remainder of people other than the 7,000. This means everybody else living in Jerusalem, primarily the Jews that are living in Jerusalem and by extension those in, in the land, will give glory to the God of heaven. This is a positive term. Everywhere it's used in Scripture, and what this indicates is that at this point, the remainder of unbelieving Jews in the land will believe the gospel, the message of these two witnesses, and they will respond in faith, accepting Jesus of Nazareth as their Messiah. And then we have a chronological note in verse 14. The second woe is now past. So this puts us right near the midpoint of the tribulation, and what is happening at this time is the abomination of desolation when the Antichrist will set himself up to be worshipped as God. Verse 15 through 19 is sort of an interlude period, an interlude period, and in this we see a heavenly scene where, again, it is recognized that the great completion of God's judgment is, uh, is imminent. Verse 15, the seventh angel sounds. That's the tr- seventh angel trumpet, trumpeter. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. Now, it hasn't happened yet. It's about to happen. This is like a, an announcer at a sports event that is about to begin, and he may say the Dallas Cowboys will defeat the Houston Texans today. Well, it hasn't happened yet. He's expressing what he thinks will happen or what is about to happen, and that is, uh, that's what is being announced here is what is about to take place. And then we see these 24 elders praising God for what is about to take place as the time of his wrath, verse 18, comes to completion. Then in chapter 12, we look at two, some other players. This is like the program you get at, uh, uh, at a baseball game telling you who the key players are at a, a sports event or at, a, at the theater telling you who, who plays in each role. We have a woman mentioned in, chat, in verse 1, and she is Israel. That should be woman, not women. Uh, two, we have the dragon introduced in uh, this sec- section, and he is identified as Satan, and further, the dragon is identified as the serpent of old called the devil and Satan. This is in verse 9. The male child that is given, that the woman gives birth to is the Lord Jesus Christ. Michael the archangel is mentioned in his battle with Satan and the fallen angels in heaven, when, and then they are cast out of heaven. There is a picture of the remnant saved Israel. This is the woman persecuted in verses 13 through 17 as she goes out into the wilderness. Now, the point of this is that if the seven trumpet judgments take place at the end of the tribulation period, then why is all this information about the midpoint given after the trumpet judgments? See, there are those, there's a great debate if you're not aware of it, and a lot of dispensational scholars disagree on this. Some put the trumpet judgments in the first half, some put it in the second half. The problem that I see is that if this interlude section 
that brings us up to date with other topics and issues and people, if that comes uh, in, in the midpoint of the tribulation, then why is it revealed after the sixth trumpet judgment and not after the sixth seal judgment if the seal judgments are the only judgments in the first half? So it seems to me best that, that all of this happens about the midpoint, brings us up to date. What happens at the midpoint? The abomination of desolation. Matthew twenty four fifteen. What did Jesus tell the, tell the Jews? When you see the abomination of desolation, don't even go home. Grab your bag, grab whatever you have with you, and head to the hills and leave Jerusalem. That's one reason you can't have the two prophets ministering in Jerusalem in the second half of the tribulation is because then they would be disobedient to the Lord's command in Matthew 24:15, which told the believing Jews to leave and evacuate from Jerusalem and from Judea and head to the hills during the second half of the tribulation of the tribulation period. And that's what we see when we look at chapter 12. It brings us up to this midpoint when we, in chapter 11, we saw the uh, abomination of desolation, the uh, execution of the two witnesses at the midpoint, and now it's time for the woman to flee. You had this mass, mass, uh, massive salvation of the Jews at the midpoint. All the rest gave glory to the God of heaven. They're saved, and now they see the abomination of desolation, and then they flee. Chapter 12 takes you back in history to the beginning of this conflict between uh, Satan and Israel. The woman is described in verse 1 as a woman clothed with sun, with the moon under her feet, and her, uh, on her head a gar- garland of 12 stars. That picks up the imagery of Joseph's dream about his brothers and his mother and father in Genesis 37.9. She's pictured as being with child. She cries out in labor and pain. She gives birth. Another sign appears in heaven in verse 3, which is the great fiery dragon with seven heads, ten horns, and seven diadems on his head. That comes right out of Daniel 7. That's the power base of the uh, ten-nation revived Roman Empire uh, of the Antichrist in, in the tribulation period. Verses 4 through 6 describe the a male child who is to rule all the nations. That's obviously the Lord Jesus Christ. And then verse 6, the woman flees into the wilderness. So it's just a quick synopsis of key events in the history of Israel, ending with her fleeing into the wilderness. Verses 7 to 12 describe what's happened in the angelic realm. And then verses 13 through 17 come back to focus on the woman who has fled to the wilderness. And this is described in... In verse 13 and 14, the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman in order that she might fly into the wilderness. This is the area most scholars believe down around Petra in modern Jordan, that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for a time. That's one year times, that's two years, and a half a time, that's a half a year once again, Time times and a half a time is three and a half years, 42 months, or 1,260 days. It covers that second half of the tribulation period so that she can be protected from the presence of the serpent, that is the dragon, the serpent of old, which is Satan. But he attacks, there's a military assault, and it's described as the pouring out of water. In verse 15, the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman so that he might cause her to be swept away 
with the flood, and the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened up its mouth and drank up the river which the dragon poured out of his mouth. Picture here is a military assault. There's an earthquake that swallows up uh, up the, um, the armies of the Antichrist. And then we come to chapter, uh, chapter 13, which introduces the two major, major players who are described as beasts, just as the empires of mankind are described as beasts in Daniel chapter 7. It is the beastly, the inhuman quality of mankind as a result of sin and rebellion against God. And so the beast is depicted as, in verse 1 of chapter 13. The first beast is depicted as coming out of the sea. This is generally understood to indicate that he is a Gentile, having seven heads and ten horns. Again, that comes right out of Daniel 7. We saw that depicted again back in, in uh, uh, chapter 11, and on his horns ten crowns, on his heads a blasphemous name. So this is the Antichrist. And the Antichrist and his power, and he's described in the same terms as the uh, bestial kingdoms of man in Daniel chapter 11, feet like a leopard. Uh, He's, he's like a leopard in terms of his speed. His feet are like that of a bear. His mouth like the mouth of a lion. In Daniel's vision, the leopard was Greece, the bear was Persia, and the uh, lion was Babylon. So his kingdom uh, embodies the strengths of all these uh, ancient and powerful nations. The dragon, that is Satan, gives him his power, his throne, and great authority. Uh, talks about the fact that he has a mortal wound that he miraculously recovers from. And all of this is during the first half of the tribulation period. And then he begins to blaspheme God, verse 6. That's the abomination of desolation. And he is grant, it is granted to him, in verse 7, to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. That's during that second half of the tribulation period, he has free reign. And those, verse 8, those who dwell on the earth, that is those who are negative to God, who will never turn to, to God or follow the truth in the tribulation, will worship him. That is the Antichrist. And then the second beast, who is the uh, false prophet, the one who gives power to the first beast and promotes him and um, and enables him to carry out his miracles, performs great signs. Verse 13, makes fire come down from heaven on the earth like Elijah does in Elijah, I mean in 1 Kings chapter 18. He deceives those who dwell on the earth by the signs that he's granted. In both of them, we have this whole emphasis on the mark of the beast. And he is, in verses 16 and 17, the false prophet causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand, and on their foreheads that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark of the name of the beast and the number of his name. That is in the second half of the tribulation period when he, the beast has his greatest power. So these chapters, 11, 12, 13, and 14, focus on, 11 focuses on Israel. You have the two prophets, the two witnesses that show up, and they're going to minister to Israel such that the vast majority of Jews will be saved. They are the remnant. So that brings in that thread. And we have a little foreshadowing there of the, uh, of, the, of the Antichrist. And then in the next chapter, in chapter 12, it goes back to, to, to the remnant again, describing her as the woman who flees into the wilderness, develops that a little more, 
and brings in the category of the beast and the dragon, which is Satan. And then in chapter 13, we pick up the dragon as the one who empowers the beast, and we're told more about the first beast and the second beast. And then when we come to chapter 14, we have a heavenly vision of the lamb on Mount Zion, and with him are the 144,000. Now, they are have all been martyred by this time, and I believe that by the midpoint of the tribulation, those 144,000 will be martyred just like the two witnesses. And we're told that they, they sing a new song before the throne, so they've obviously been in heaven, and uh, they are no longer on the earth. They have appeared on Mount Zion, and uh, we're told in verse 4, they were redeemed from among men, being first preached to God and to the Lamb. So this 144,000 is a unique cadre that comes back with the Lord Jesus Christ as he prepares for his final return at the second coming. But before that happens, there will be more grace from God, and there are three angelic announcements that take place. The first announcement is that there is an angel that flies through the heavens proclaiming the gospel to all mankind. Now, why is that? The 144,000 of the two witnesses are off the scene halfway through the tribulation period. So at the beginning of the second half, there is an angelic evangelist who proclaims the gospel worldwide and announces of impending judgment. In the second announcement, there is the warning that the kingdom of man is about to fall. Babylon the Great is fallen, and the nations who are allied with the Antichrist will uh, will be destroyed. And the reason I believe this happens at the beginning of the second half is because of the third announcement. The third announcement warns that any of those who receive the mark of the beast are destined for the lake of fire. So there is a warning there. There, there, there won't be any neutral people who say, oops, I got the mark of the beast. Uh-oh, I, I guess I'm going to go to heaven because the scriptures clearly teach that all who receive the mark of the beast are going to go to the lake of fire. And the reason they do that is because by taking the mark of the beast, they know that they are aligning themselves against God. They have rejected Christ as Savior. These are specifically stated in these chapters to be those earth dwellers. And so there is this angelic announcement to all mankind, leaving all without excuse, so that when the Antichrist institutes this, whatever it is, whether it's a tattoo or you know, uh, the universal pricing code or whatever it is, computer chip, uh, whatever it might be, people who take it know what the issue issues are. And they know that salvation lies only with Jesus Christ and to align themselves with the Antichrist is to formally reject the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. And so we come to the end of chapter 14, and there is the preparation then for the final judgment, which is depicted as a reaper coming with a sharp sickle to thrust in the sickle and to reap, to bring about that judgment. And then chapter 15 comes back to the bold judgment. So we have this this pause in the action between the end of chapter 9 the sixth trumpet judgment, and chapter 15, the prelude to the seventh trumpet judgment, which contain the seven bowl judgments. And in these five chapters, 10 through 14, we see 
uh, we're caught up to date with these other activities that are going on during the first half of the tribulation period. And what we see is the certainty of divine judgment as it's announced, beginning in Revelation 14:15, that God will indeed bring about justice in human history, answering the question, the cries, the prayers that have gone seemingly unanswered for centuries. God will finally intercede because the number of saved has reached its fullest mark and there will be no more who are saved. All have made their decision and it is time to bring human history to a close. So next time we'll come back and we'll begin to look at the events in chapter 10, looking in a little more detail at that little book, The Angel and the Identification of the Angel in Revelation chapter 10 with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we're thankful that you have revealed these things to us, that we can see where history is headed. We can understand that history is not haphazard, but that it is under your control and that you will bring about a final judgment and final justice both in time and in eternity. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that is unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. Jesus Christ died on the cross for you. He died on the cross for your sins. When he hung there between heaven and hell, he received the imputation of every single sin you've committed. He bore that punishment in his body on the cross so that you can be free to trust in him. There's nothing you need to do to gain favor with God. There's nothing you need to do to impress God. There's nothing you need to do to to persuade God that you should be saved. He has already done everything for you. The only thing you need to do is to believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins and that by trusting in him alone, you have eternal life. Father, we pray that you challenge each of us with what we study today, that we might be encouraged that no matter what may happen, no matter what injustices there may be in life, that ultimately there will be justice and satisfaction before your uh, Supreme Court. We pray this now in the name of Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen.